0: Let me be explicit. Right now, in this podcast, there's some explicit language. It's Monday, December 28th, 2020. From Slate, it's the gist. I'm Mike Pesca. Early on a Christmas morn, a disgruntled 63-year-old RV owner. Oh, no. Not a good set of words. This is not going to be good. Indeed, he wired his vehicle to blow up on a Nashville street. Minor injuries, three requiring hospitalization... The suspect is Anthony Quinn Warner. The Anthony Quinns in my day used to break plates at worst. Zorba! Anthony Quinn Warner, he does the John Wayne Gacy thing of hijacking a beloved cultural figure right at the last moment, turning it all dark and twisted. You think we're done? No, we're adding a Gacy and a Warner. Little fork in the road, like when you say James Earl. Could go Jones, Mustafa. Could go Ray, horrible murderer. True fork. Perhaps the starkest of the forks in all the names of notorious or famous people. I am getting pretty sick of these guys, not James Earl Jones. The angry loner who society has no use for and who has no use for society. So he takes a small portion of society with him, maybe just himself. I immediately thought of the Las Vegas shooter, the deadliest mass shooter in American history. He was in his 60s. There were some other shooters, mass shooters and mass mm, terrorists, would-be terrorists of that age. But the pattern actually doesn't hold. Mass shooting, usually a young man's act. And men, it is true. It is not actually, mass shootings aren't disproportionately carried out by white people, as some people allege. It is, as I said, overwhelmingly male. If you look at acts of terrorism, those skew young also. There are plenty of exceptions. An 88-year-old killed a guard in an anti-Semitic attack at the Holocaust Museum a few years ago. Usually, I explain it or think of the phenomenon as... There are readily available means of destruction around us. Guns, for instance, or ingredients for a bomb. Everyone knows how to make them. And that is true. I think about the costs of media contagion. That's also true. It's why I refrain from saying the names of past shooters, although there is a news imperative to report proper names in initial reports. I also think the mockery of the pathetic nature of some of these suspects probably, maybe, will disincentivize some other would-be malefactors. Mostly, I come back to this. We are a nation of 330 million people. Some percent, granted too large a percent, but some percent is always going to engage in acts of extreme violence. Given how frighted the public rhetoric is, it's kind of a wonder why there isn't more chaos and things that go blast in the night. In fact, this explosion, which seems to have killed only the perpetrator, is Less bloody than the shooting on Saturday at an Illinois bowling alley. Three dead there and three wounded, some pretty seriously. So really, we are fixated on the unusual and the mysterious, which is why the Nashville explosion is still at the top of the news. And you may not even have heard of that Rockport, Illinois shooting. Or your first thought may have been, as mine was, not, oh, my God. Because you say, oh my God, about things you can't believe, and we certainly all as Americans can believe in another mass shooting. My first thought about the bowling alley shooting was, what's a bowling alley doing open? And by the way, it wasn't open. The bowling alley wasn't open, but there was a bar inside serving takeout food, operating in compliance with COVID restrictions. All of this is just, of course, so sad. It's also so usual. We are a country of 330 million people, I say it to myself again, and every so often someone or something is set off, and sadly there doesn't seem like there is much we could do about it except maybe take comfort in the huge denominator and hope the odds stay in our favor. On the show today, my spiel is a remembrance of things Trump with a little extra on top of the usual remembrances of things Trump. It is the carrier plant edition. But first, you know the results of the 2020 election, how It hinged on Michigan, Wisconsin, Pennsylvania, Arizona, Georgia, swinging from Trump to the Democrats. But those weren't the states that swung the most away from Trump. Those were just the states that Trump lost as a result of his decreased popularity there. They swung over to the other side. But the biggest losses, the biggest net totals were in places that he won huge in 2016 and not so huge or as huge in 2020. He lost 5% of his support in Kansas and about 6% of his support in Nebraska. Now, somebody already wrote the book asking what's the matter with Kansas, and now a similar work is out about Nebraska. Can the deep red run a little more purple there? Rural Rebellion, How Nebraska Became a Republican Stronghold, author Ross Bennis up next. unflattering things about the war effort and just how he talked to his wife and how they decided not to be bitter and not to wallow in. He could have taken some shots at the process, the reporter or the president at that point, but he didn't. It was just an overall good interview. It was facilitated by Jordan's excellent interview style. Whether Jordan is conducting an interview or giving advice to a listener, you will find something useful that can apply to your own life in every single episode of the Jordan Harbinger Show. That could mean learning how to ask for advice the right way are discovering a little mindset tweak that changes how you see the world. Search for the Jordan Harbinger Show. That's H-A-R, like the first three letters in hard, B-I-N-G-E, as in how you'll want to catch up on all the episodes on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Over a decade ago, a man named Thomas Frank wrote a book called What's the Matter with Kansas? And in a sentence, the thesis, according to Frank, was this is a place where prairie populism was once prominent. Sorry for the alliteration, where the economic interests of the people should lay towards the progressive side. But man, don't they vote Republican? Mostly because they've been hoodwinked. Well, now the journalist and researcher Ross Bennett has written a book about Kansas's bitter rival and yet in matters of politics, something of political twin. It is called Rural Rebellion, How Nebraska Became a Republican Stronghold. I am a sucker for sons of the state looking back and explaining their state to me. So I invited Ross on. Hi, Ross. Thanks for doing this.
1: Thanks for having me on, Mike. So, People might be excused for
0: thinking, oh, Nebraska, that's a very red state. And in terms of what the people are actually wearing on most Saturdays, yeah, it probably is the most red state in the nation because, man, do they love the Cornhuskers. But it's not really that red and hasn't always been that red, even during your relatively short lifetime, right?
1: Absolutely. When I was born, just to give you an example, we had two Democratic senators. We shortly thereafter elected a Democratic governor, Ben Nelson, and we continued to pass Uh, Progressive legislation and support progressive legislation. People forget Nebraska provided the final vote for Obamacare. So we haven't always been so far right. And um, I think people forget that because of where things are now. But if you just look back 20 years ago, we were actually pretty middle of the road ideologically.
0: Well, people might forget about the final vote for Obamacare unless you prompt them with the reminder of the Cornhusker kickback, which was a vilification of, well, as you write in your book, a somewhat normal political process.
1: I I will credit the Republicans for coming up with a catchy title. Basically, Ben Nelson was the final vote to help block the filibuster. And Harry Reid was trying to gather all the Democrats to get in line. And according to President Obama's memoirs and everyone else except for Ben Nelson. Uh, ben Nelson made his vote contingent on Nebraska receiving federal funding for Medicaid for him to support Obamacare, which you would think would be a good thing. You're bringing money to the state. This is just kind of how vote trading works. But it got blown way out of proportion. And the Republicans tagged him as this like back room shady dealer. And it, you know, effectively kind of drove him out of office. He decided not to run for re-election after the backlash.
0: To pull back a little bit. While an outsider or even maybe an economist would say it is in the economic interest of the people in the state to vote more for a progressive agenda. The people in the state might not be tricked or hoodwinked into not voting for that agenda. They might identify with the Republican Party more based on social issues. Indeed, they do. Just Mm -hmm. on the social agenda, you know, explain why a Nebraskan shouldn't vote for someone who lives his or her social values and will champion that on a federal or state level.
1: Well, a lot of it, unfortunately, is feeling an emotional base, that it isn't, you know, people don't live like they're Spock and do this cost-benefit analysis, and, and they may be low-information voters. I, I think when we boil things down to economic interests, uh, that's just one type of interest. For the, for the people I knew, a lot of the things they cared about were those social wedge issues, you know, like abortion and, and guns, and uh, that's something that has been bred into them, and it's reinforced by living in those towns when everyone else feels that way and talks about it at the bar or at church or at Friday night football games. So I think it's kind of patronizing if we tell them you need to vote how we tell you to vote. And the more you do that, the more you drive those people away. No one's no one who's very conservative in a small town is going to suddenly flip to being a Democrat because you tell them it's in their best interest and you should do it if you know it's good for you. If anything, it drives them into a a defensive position and then they come out Kind of aggressively, like they did when they voted for Trump, where they will double down and they'll come harder on being conservative. You know, I I also think that there's a lot of stuff that gets melded into like one amorphous mass. People there have frustrations with the Democratic Party, the mass media, the university, all all these things that are kind of boogeymen for the conservative movement. They're all very different things, you know, just because you're a journalist doesn't mean you have any connection to the Democratic Party. But they have this, like, this big ball of, like, liberal animosity, and it shows up when they identify with Republicans, no matter if the Republicans support a position they don't favor. And just to give you an example, Nebraska passed minimum wage increase through ballot measure, and Mm -hmm. Republicans fought that hard, and they were very against it. But Nebraskans aren't heartless, and they voted for it, but— That didn't change their opinion on Republicans. But doesn't that
0: indict the Democratic Party just as much as it says something about the Republicans? The Democrats are literally championing the policies that the voters want, but the voters aren't voting for the Democrats for some reason. And I would think it has to do with branding or associations with these social issues that they find abhorrent.
1: I would say there's definitely a branding issue, and I would say Democrats were asleep at the switch when a lot of this stuff happened in middle of America. And it's not just Nebraska. It's all these states with low population density where partisanship has become predictable by their low population density. You know, the more Democrats doubled down on their more, like, liberal and urban core, it contributed to bigger losses in these places with low density.
0: Well, I mean, I think that the political science is clear on this, that once a policy, even a policy favored by swing voters gets attached to one party, then party uh polarization kicks in. That's a well-known phenomenon. I mean, I just talked to David Shore and he says, look at gay marriage. It's getting more popular, getting more popular. 1994 becomes politicized and associated with Democrats, takes a dip in popularity, and then it becomes more popular again. So I don't know if you blame Democrats or blame Repub- or Republicans for blaming Democrats, but there's certainly an association with a party that's not working for most Nebraskans.
1: There definitely is that association. And part of it is... I think self-inflicted like in Nebraska, for instance, Democrats haven't really regularly appeared in these rural places. They haven't run competitive candidates. I mean, in 2018, they had to recruit a Republican state senator run for governor because they had no one who could run. And then for attorney general, they had no one who could run because the guy that they nominated was this fringe candidate who got slapped at the felony charge for strangling his 85 year old father. So the, the bench isn't great. When you, when you aren't able to build that infrastructure and have reliable candidates, it leads people to disassociate with you. And then when you come back five years later for a big Senate race or Congress race, people have forgot about you and moved on because you weren't there, you know, five years when they needed you. Even
0: though there are a lot more of them in Nebraska than there are in other places, is that the majority of Nebraskans, low density uh, inhabitants? So over half
1: of people in Nebraska live in our two cities. Lincoln and Omaha, and when I and I say we really only have like two cities because our football stadium, when full, is twice as large as our third city. So we only have two cities. That's the best like, fact,
0: by the way. I love that. <laughs> <laughs> Eight Saturdays a year, the third biggest, the third biggest, well, far city in the third biggest, oh, yeah, not even yeah. close.
1: <laughs> yeah, we, we. I mean, it, it, it basically goes. You know, Omaha, five hundred thousand metro area of about a million. Lincoln's close to three hundred thousand. The next city's like fifty thousand. But a lot of the people who live in those two cities have rural roots because of depopulation in rural areas, but they don't have as much electoral influence as their numbers would make you think. And that's because in the rural areas, voter turnout is higher, people are more likely to be old, and they're way, way more likely to be Republican.
0: You wrote a lot about your dad and what his values are and why he votes the way he does and how he likes Nebraska football and Bud Light. So that guy is never gonna vote for a Chuck Schumer. And in fact, I would say that Ben Sass is a great senator for him. We could nitpick about Ben Sass's sincerity on issues. But look, he represents Nebraskan interests. He's a smart guy. He's not a Trump toady. He doesn't say, you know, wildly crazy conspiratorially conspiratorial things or unconstitutional things, which, by the way, seems like a low bar, but puts him in the upper half of the Republican Party. So anyway, what I'm positing is that your dad needs a senator to represent his interests. I think Ben Sass is a fine choice. And you need a senator to represent your interests as a New York resident. And I think Chuck Schumer is a fine choice. I think mainly the problem is that a guy like Ben Sass and a guy like uh, Chuck Schumer plus 49 each of their side, can't get anything done because of the nature of our government and the Senate. I think that's a bigger problem than exactly who it is Nebraskans choose to represent them. What do you think?
1: Well, Ben Sass is just one example. I, I think the issue is there are those Trump toadies in Nebraska. Our governor is one of them. For, for every person like Ben Sass, who, even though it's a very minimal thing to congratulate Joe Biden for winning election, that does put him in the upper echelon of the Republican Party we, we have state senators, congressmen and uh, our governor who have gone on this far right trajectory where I don't think they necessarily represent the best interests of people like my parents.
0: So Nebraska is one of two states that splits their vote in the Electoral College. And in fact, Biden did great in the second electoral district, which is uh, Omaha. What does that mean for your thesis or the Democratic Party, or analyzing politics as we do through the prism of the Electoral College. I mean, to me, that indicates if the Electoral College didn't exist, or if we maybe apportioned it by congressional district, uh, especially fairly drawn congressional districts, it wouldn't be that dire a situation that Nebraska was so radically Republican.
1: No, yeah, it definitely wouldn't be as dire if, um, you know, like Omaha had its own saying things like, like they, you know, like they, like they did with, um, with the presidential election because of the weird way that we split our electoral votes. But that said, um, while um, Biden did well, Don Bacon, uh, Republican congressman, still easily won re-election. I would say that's more of a dissatisfaction with Trump, but that they still didn't really embrace Democrats.
0: Yes. So I don't know it as well as you do, but to me, Don Bacon does, in fact, match that electoral district. The mayor of Omaha is a Republican, Jean Strothert. Is that it? Yep. So she's a Republican. She's been elected a couple times. It is, though it is a city, Um, it is overwhelmingly white. And it's not a very liberal city. It's just not a very liberal place. It, to me, guys like Don Bacon winning there and going to Washington and serving— it's fine. It's more than fine. It's representative of the people. If most Republicans were like Don Bacon, I don't know that there would be a book like yours.
1: Yeah, if most Republicans are like Don Bacon, I probably wouldn't have been motivated to write this book. You know, it was the the craziness of Trump's takeover of the Republican Party, and um, things that happened within our state, like with the governor and um, state senators, that that led me here. But I mean, yeah, you you've read my book. I, I don't have nearly as much criticism of, of Don Bacon as I do of. Um, you know, other Nebraska Republicans. Bacon does an okay job. What's frustrating though is when, when he ends up just becoming a, another vote to do something crazy that Trump wanted to do. Or, right. you know, if he becomes obstructionist with Biden, which I mean, it's way too early to say that would happen, but it just given how Republican Congress has treated previous Democratic presidents, I almost expect it to happen.
0: Right, right. It's part of the polarization of our system and why it's logical to only vote for the R or D as much as you don't want that to be true. But, you know, you vote for the voting for the person means that person will be voting for their leader and that leader will be obstructionist to the other party's president. And so you might as well, with very rare exception, just vote for the political party to serve your interests in America today. So here's my last question. Is the Nebraska 2nd Electoral District a harbinger, where a part of the state has mostly been loyal to the Republican brand for a decade or a couple decades, but there is a chance that the fever breaks? Maybe it takes something horrific like Trump to break the fever. Can that be replicated on a state level?
1: I do think the same thing could happen. It would have to start in Omaha. That's where Democrats have the best chance. You know, they need to win a congressional seat or a mayor's race or more state Senate seats or more city council. I mean, there's various things they need to do to really make foothold in Omaha. And if they do that and they can convince more of the state to join with them, perhaps um, they could influence the Republican Party to not be so extremist to appeal to voters. And then we could get more moderate Republicans um, than, you know, some of the far right people that we're putting in today but I, I don't see it happening in the next few years unfortunately uh, but it's, it's definitely possible I think it'd be unwise to act like we're in this forever we're just in this weird point in time where this state full of very friendly people has um, widely adopted the orthodoxy of a kind of a nasty party right now
0: the name of the book is Rural Rebellion How Nebraska Became a Republican Stronghold by Ross Bennis
1: thanks Ross <laughs> Thank you, Mike.
0: which will also be a remembrance of things Trump. So we have been recounting the silly, the shameful, and the showmanlike during the Trump presidency, incidents you may have forgotten. And as we end the year, let's remember how he started the presidency. This was an event that happened, in fact, during the pre-presidency. He claimed to have rescued jobs from the carrier plant in Indiana. If you remember... Before Trump was even inaugurated, and while Mike Pence was governor of Indiana, that's important, Trump got wind of a furnace plant that might be shutting down, possibly to relocate to Mexico. So Trump intervened, and Indiana gave Carrier $7 million in state credits and training grants as arranged by Mike Pence as he left that state and went to Washington. Now, this whole arrangement did open the president up to charges that he was setting up a moral hazard, meaning more plants or businesses would threaten to leave to extract governmental goodies. It also wasn't scalable. Trump couldn't save American manufacturing writ large, one sympathetic plant at a time. And indeed, he didn't save American manufacturing. According to the Labor Department, just take the state of Indiana, Overall, more than 20 manufacturers moved production to foreign countries during the Trump administration, 3,000 jobs lost in that state. The carrier plant itself lost 600 jobs. There was nothing Trump could do to save them. But he did save, I guess if you want to call it save, his intervention caused 600 employees to retain their jobs, good paying jobs, union jobs. This would all be a neat story, I guess, either way, if it really worked out or if it really didn't. If we could say, you know, Trump couldn't save any of the jobs. You know who he is. He's just the purveyor of Trump vodka and Trump University. He's nothing but a flim-flam man who sells the Trump sizzle but bankrupts Trump steaks. But it's not exactly true with Carrier. There are 800 workers there who probably wouldn't be there but for presidential or about to be presidential intervention. Yes, it took state grants to save the jobs, but it comes out to about $8,000 per employee. That's all it takes. States should put forward that amount of money to save these 60, 70, $80,000 a year jobs. Now, the jobs, however, they are kind of grueling. The New York Times checked in on the plant a couple times during the course of Trump's presidency. In 2018, they found the workers there experiencing low morale as the plant was beset by absenteeism and the belief that moving to Mexico would happen once Trump left office. A worker was quoted in 2018 as saying, as long as Trump is in office, I will have a job. In 2020, the Times went back, quoted a different carrier employee saying, Trump is the reason we have our job. As long as he was in office, we were safe. The plant actually hired an additional 300 workers, but this barely eased the load of the ones already there. They were forced to work in some cases 30 straight days with no days off. The Washington Post also covered the Carrier story. They filed an ambitious piece a couple of weeks ago, looked not just at Carrier's Indiana plant, but the Monterey, Mexico plant that sucked away so many of the U.S. jobs. Carrier's labor costs in Mexico are 80 percent less than they are in Indiana. And this means that the calculation for all international companies, it's just undeniable. And the policies of any administration, let alone Trump's Potemkin village-style administration, it could do nothing to shape the modern global economy. Beyond the 800 jobs that Trump quote-unquote saved, Trump hurt the workers and many such workers with tariff policies, which... Not just the carrier plant, but hundreds of other plants and thousands of other workers suffered under. They never got a press conference or repeated check-ins from the media. I would say that's the lesson of this plant and this story and this president. Sometimes the part doesn't stand for the whole. Sometimes the example is not an example of anything bigger, it's the exception. Donald Trump likes the grand attention-grabbing gesture, a lot of politicians do, but it doesn't pair it up with follow-up or policy that can scale. He would point to a single plant and say, that, that's my manufacturing record. He would point to the pardon of five or six black people at the recommendation of Kim Kardashian and say, that's my criminal justice record. He would repeatedly hug an American flag and say, that's the evidence of my patriotism. Now, it's not like those disinclined to believe Trump would buy any of this, but they're there was so much else to track down during his administration and to fact check that those little lies, those little examples were allowed to stand. And really, when I say allowed to stand, that assumes some sort of vetting process whereby an actor statement is discredited and that's it. It's removed from the field of play. That is not how it happened under Trump. The carrier plant is still operating to some extent anxiously and under a lot of stress. That actually is a metaphor not for the Trump presidency, but for America and the state of manufacturing and industry in America today. The thing that is a metaphor for the Trump presidency is the attempt to use this plant and so many other little examples as metaphors at all. The workers in the plant predict their jobs will not remain for long. All macro trends indicate they are right. And when they're working in distribution centers at two-thirds the rate of pay of the carrier plant or in donut shops at one-third the pay, few in America will remember that these workers were once held out as an example of the exception and not the rule. Though maybe some people will remember, maybe you or I, and that is why we engage in these Remembrances of Things Trump. That's it for today's show. The Gist was produced by Shayna Roth, who got a Friends Monopoly set for the holidays. Could you not pass go? Could Marcel do more damage to the waterworks? The Gist is produced by Margaret Kelly, who got a weighted blanket for Christmas. It was a regular blanket. She ordered around Thanksgiving, then she waited. Daniel Schrader also produces The Gist. He got a bunt cake tin for Christmas. This replaces his much less reliable hit-and-run cake tin. Wish Montgomery is executive producer of Slate Podcast. She missed today's meeting, so I can't broadcast the holiday gift she got. But let us assume that it was a Theragun, which is what happens when you say, I want the Ray Gun, but concerned family members pretend not to hear you exactly. The gist. This holiday season, you've had the eggnog, the Christmas ham, the Christmas cookies, the Christmas owl. And now you've given yourself the most lasting gift of all, gout. Give the gift of gout this holiday season. Gout—it makes a great stocking stuffer. Umpru depuru dupru, and thanks for listening.